Well, this morning uh, we have at least five people being baptized, and so I felt led to preach on baptism. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of Luke this morning and talk about baptism. We are a, a Baptist church, so why do we do what we do? We don't do it just because of history and heritage. We do it because the Bible teaches believers baptism by immersion. And so I believe this morning you will be overwhelmed by the amount of biblical basis there is for this. And so we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, This is the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you'd like to turn with me there, Matthew chapter 28, we're going to read these verses. And I would ask you to stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, well, let's begin our time together this morning just explaining this passage and what's going on here. This is at the very end of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. This is after he has resurrected from the dead, after he has been seen by many witnesses alive, and he has given direction in some way for the remaining 11 uh, disciples that will become known as the apostles to meet him on a mountain. Why are there 11? There are 11 because Judas Iscariot, the, the traitor who betrayed Jesus, killed himself by suicide because of despair. And so at this point, there are only 11. And they went to Jesus on the mountain, as was his direction. And when they see him, what do they do? When they see him, they worship him. Often people will say, what will you do when the first time you see Jesus in heaven? And there's some strange things that people say they will do. But I tell you what you will do is you will worship Jesus. You will make every way that you possibly can to make it known that you love Jesus and that you honor him. And when you see him resurrected in glory, you will worship him just like these disciples did. But they are not in heaven yet. They are on the earth. And so it is important to see. It says they worshiped, but some doubted. Do you find that hard to believe? That after seeing Jesus die upon a cross and resurrected from the dead, that some still doubted? I don't find that hard to believe because I still struggle with doubts sometimes. And I believe there's every single one of you here struggle with doubts in your faith from time to time. But you know what's important about the way that they struggled with doubt? Is that they were there on the mountain. They followed Jesus' commands. They went to where he said to go and they did what he said to do. And they worked through those doubts over time until they were assured of their faith as they followed after Jesus in obedience to his commands. But they are there on this mountain, worshiping Jesus. And Jesus speaks his last words to them before he ascends into heaven. And it is a powerful word, and a word that we must never, ever, ever lose sight of. Because Jesus brings the greatest possible sense of focus to it by bringing all authority. He says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't know how Jesus could bring any greater weight to the words that he is saying than to say, I have been given 
all authority of everyone on earth and every spiritual thing that exists in heaven and under the earth, all spiritual things, all authority has been given to me. I am the final authority in all things. And I am telling you four things. I'm first telling you to go. Don't just stay in Jerusalem. Don't just hold these things to yourself. Don't cloister yourselves away, but go. Go out into the world and bear witness to what you have seen, to how you have seen me resurrected from the dead. You have seen me alive. Bear witness to all the things that I taught you and told you to do. Go unto the nations and make disciples. That's the second thing, making disciples of all nations. A disciple is a person who follows after another person, learns their ways, walks in their ways, is under their authority. And they are to go and bear witness of Jesus Christ and to teach other people that have never heard the name of Jesus or anything that he ever did and tell them about Jesus that they might also follow in his ways. And you would think, this is crazy. Why would someone from another country who's never heard of Jesus, never known any of these things, why would they follow after Jesus? Because they know in their soul that there is a God and they know in their heart that they are a sinner and that they need a savior and that the message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ is good news and it has been received all around the globe as people have gone out to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so they are to teach them to follow after Christ, to believe in him. But the third thing they are told to do is to baptize them to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And one of the main things that I want you to take away from today is that this is one of the commands. After Jesus invokes all of his authority upon these people, he tells them that once people have believed and become my disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I think that a great many Americans, and if you're one of these this morning, they consider baptism of little importance or of therapeutic importance or something that I'll do when I get around to it. You're missing what Jesus has said in his authority, and I want you to hear it this morning. But after they have been baptized, it's not over. The journey begins at that point where he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. We must teach people after they have come to salvation and come to baptism to learn, understand, and then obey all that Jesus Christ has taught. And that takes a lifetime to learn and study and understand the scriptures and grow and grow and grow that we might be true disciples of Jesus Christ. But he does not leave us to this alone. The last statement is one of such great comfort. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our God is a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God existing in three persons. And we'll soon see in this story that God sends his Holy Spirit to fill and indwell the hearts of believers, that the presence of the Lord might be with us always as we live out these things. And so the focus this morning is going to be on the command of baptism, to go, to evangelize, to baptize, and to disciple. Our focus this morning being on baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word, the Greek word here used in the original scripture is baptizo. And its definition is very clear. If you go look it up in a Greek dictionary, it means to immerse, to submerge, to wash by immersion. 
And I want us to see this morning the unbroken pattern of the New Testament because baptism is not a brand new thing, but it takes on a radically different and important role in the New Testament from the very beginning all the way through to the end. It begins with John the Baptist, is picked up by Jesus, and then by the apostles, and then Paul, and then the early church. The word baptizo in the uh, instance of being baptized like we're talking about here this morning is used over 70 times in the New Testament. If something's spoken of two or three times, it becomes important. When something is spoken of 70 times in just about every book of the New Testament, it is a radically important theme that we should not lose sight of. It is a major and constant theme throughout the entire New Testament. So let's begin with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness a message of repentance and that the kingdom of God is coming. He is the forerunner of Jesus Christ, speaking that Jesus is to come. And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says this. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, who is John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so the picture is John, as a, as a prophet, is preaching in the wilderness. And he's preaching a gospel of repentance of sins. That you would confess your sins, turn away from your sins, and then be forgiven by God and baptized. And after people respond to this message of repentance, he takes them into the Jordan River and baptizes them in the river. And it's symbolic. It's symbolic of what has happened in the soul, a washing or cleansing of the soul is now happening in a symbolic way in this river. But it is inadequate, and he knows it's inadequate, and he says it's inadequate. He says, there is one coming yet that is greater than I, and he will not just baptize you with water, but baptize you by the Holy Spirit. That water baptism is important and commanded by Jesus Christ, but it is a symbolic measure it is the immersion or the filling of the Holy Spirit that radically and totally and finally changes us. But John is the first one to speak of these things and to start this pattern that is unbroken throughout the New Testament. Well, Jesus carries on this pattern of baptism. He carries on the ministry of John to both further and to fulfill what was incomplete in John. So if we look over just a little bit further in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John didn't fully understand what was going on here because his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus had no sin. He had no need to repent of his sins. And so John says, let me be baptized by you. But Jesus goes on, but Jesus answered him, verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And so what I understand to be going on here is that it was something that was done to bring him into this pattern of baptism. That which he was going to require of every one of his disciples, he does himself. And it is not a baptism of repentance, but it is, as he says, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. 
and it is a definite marker in time, as we're going to see. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so for Jesus, baptism was the definite marker of the beginning of his ministry. This is when Jesus comes forward and begins to proclaim himself as the savior of the world and God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the Father speaking clearly from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It is a radical marker to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ and that marker is baptism by immersion. Well, we go on in the gospels and John 4, 2, it says that Jesus did not actually baptize himself, but he delegated it to his disciples. But his disciples went about baptizing continuously. It was a delegated but required thing. In Luke chapter 7, verses 28 through 30, we see Jesus commending John. So I'm going to read from uh, Luke 7, 28 through 30. Jesus in his ministry says this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so what I want us to understand from this passage is that Jesus comes in later after having been baptized by John and commends his ministry, furthers his ministry, and says that he himself is in harmony with the ministry of John. He commends him as being great. And it says, when the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. So the people that had come out and heard the baptism of John and been convicted of their sins, confessed their sins, and been baptized, they recognized that Jesus was not preaching a different message. He was saying essentially the same thing. And they recognized that Jesus was of God because he was coming and preaching the same thing as one of the true prophets of God. But it's fascinating what, who rejects this statement. It's the Pharisees, no surprise. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. This is one of the verses in the New Testament that talks about the Pharisees rejecting the baptism of John and rejecting the baptism of Jesus Christ. Whereas many thousands were baptized and came into salvation through this, the Pharisees would have none of it. They rejected the purpose of God in these things. And I would ask you a question, why? Because it's important, and it's one of the long-standing reasons why many people do not get baptized, and it's because they have a religious system created by men that says that baptism is unimportant. And this is what the Pharisees had. They had a religious system that they had built up that said that baptism was unimportant, and we are going to hold to our system more than hearing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have many other examples of this in the Gospels that we just don't have time for this morning. You can go and look those up yourself. But the last one is the one that we have already read. 
It's where Jesus brings a pattern, a pattern from John, a pattern that he carried on with his disciples to bring it into very clear focus as a command. This is not just something that was done in the past, but this is something that I am commanding to be done from here all the way into the end of the age, which means the end of all things, the end of time, and that Jesus is going to be with us in this until all things are complete. And so this morning, we don't just baptize because of an old pattern. We baptize because of a living command that is still upon us, and we believe that it is relevant and necessary. But what Jesus brings into firm focus in Matthew 28 is that it is a Trinitarian baptism. When we go out and baptize the lost, we should baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because when we go out into the world, we will find many polytheists, those that believe that there are many, many gods, whether they believe they're idols or whatever, that there are many things to worship. Or they will believe that there is no God at all. Or they will be what I call a hard monotheist, that there is no Trinitarian aspect, there is only one God. This is like Islam. Islam rejects the divinity of Jesus Christ, rejects the Holy Spirit. They believe only in God the Father that these things are wrong, that the scriptures teach that there is one God existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is what the scriptures teach, and this is what we are baptized into. Well, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles hear the command of Christ, and they obey the command of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, At the time of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the apostles, and Peter begins to preach to this gathered audience of people from all over the place. He says in Acts 2, 37 through 41, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, this being the long sermon that Peter preached to them about Jesus and who he was. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So when they come under great conviction after being preached to about who Jesus is, what should I do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so the pattern continues. Preaching, conviction of sin, repentance, confession of sin, belief, and then baptism to associate with Jesus Christ as Lord. 3,000 souls. That was a lot of baptizing. That had to take a long time. Would have been, I, and that's why this day is recorded in Scripture, one of the greatest days in the history of the church. Later on in Acts, uh, we have Acts chapter 8, verse 38, another example of uh, baptism, which is important. We have Philip being taken by the Holy Spirit to a lonely road where he meets up with an Ethiopian that is going down the road in a chariot, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and Philip encounters him, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I understand what I'm reading unless someone explains it to me? 
And so he gets up and he explains to this Ethiopian what he is reading in the, in the scripture, which is one of the direct prophecies of Jesus Christ coming as Savior. And he explains to him who Christ is. And he explains to him apparently the imperative of baptism. And this man believes. And as they're going along, they see some water on the side of the road. And he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing prevents you from being baptized. And so they get out of the chariot, and the scriptures say they go down into the water, and the man is baptized there. And then Philip mysteriously is taken away at that time. But this man is one of the early witnesses that goes back to the country of Ethiopia to bear witness to Jesus Christ as Lord. And if you know your history, Ethiopia is one of the longest, most unbroken Christian nations in the world. And so this is a part of Ethiopia coming to know Christ as their Savior. And then we go on to Acts chapter 9 with the Apostle Paul. We must remember his conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul, who hated the church, hated Jesus Christ, was filled with murderous rage for the church. And he had received permission from the Pharisees to go and persecute them in Damascus, to jail them, to put them to death. And on his way to persecute the church, the Lord Jesus opens a window from heaven and a blinding light shines upon him on the road to Damascus. And he is struck in the middle of the road and blinded. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul looks up to heaven, blinded, and says, Lord, who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And at that time, he was led, had to be led by the hand into Damascus. His pride was gone, his rage was gone, and he was humbled to the lowest possible place. Being led by the hand to the place of persecution, instead to an empty room, where he sat for three days and three nights, refusing to take food or water, contemplating in his own soul where he had gone wrong and what he had missed and how it is that he had persecuted Jesus as Savior. And the Lord sends Ananias to him to minister the gospel and to tell him of the grace of Jesus Christ, that all of his terrible deeds might be forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. And when Saul believes and accepts these things, it says that, Things like scales fell off of his eyes and he was able to see. And in his newfound belief, what do the scriptures say was the first thing that he did? He was baptized. He went out and was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because as a Pharisee, as we have seen already, he had rejected baptism. He had rejected Jesus as the true Son of God. And so when he believed in Jesus, his very first step was to go and be baptized. And so we see carrying on in the book of Acts, Peter. Peter, Acts chapter 10, verse 47. This is the account of the very first Gentile family coming to salvation and being given the Holy Spirit. This is the household of Cornelius. If you've never read the story, it's a powerful story. The Lord does all kinds of miraculous things to bring Peter and Cornelius together and make it abundantly clear throughout Acts chapter 10 and then on into 11 that God has blessed this concept of the Holy Spirit being given to Gentiles and the bringing together of Jew and Gentile to create one church, a new thing, a fulfilled prophecy, something going forward that is different. But what happens when the Holy Spirit falls upon the household of Cornelius and this household of people believes? The first conclusion that Peter comes to is that if the Holy Spirit has been given to them, then they are saved, 
then they must be baptized. And so the household of Cornelius is taken out and baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so there are, enters in the book of Acts to a series of examples of households being baptized. And it's important for us to look at this. Acts 16, 15, Lydia. Acts 16, 33, the Philippian jailer. Acts 18, 8. Uh, each of these talk about a person coming to salvation and then their household being baptized with them. And this is often wrongly understood in light of everything else that is going on. In the household of Cornelius, it is very clear that the people of the household also believe. It's not that Cornelius believed and all of his house was unbelieving, but the unbelievers were baptized. That's not what we see going on there. They all believed and they were all baptized. And it's also very clear in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, with this character named Crispus. He was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. And it says very plainly that he believed and those in his household believed. And then they were a part of this great many people that were baptized in Corinth at that time. And so when it comes to Lydia and the Philippian jailer, we just are not given the details of what else happened with their family. But the unbroken pattern of the New Testament is that those who believe are then baptized. We never have an example of someone who is an unbeliever being baptized. Well, let's go on now from the, the pattern of baptism in the New Testament to understanding the apostolic writings later, the Romans, uh, Colossians, as to what Paul writes about the significance and the symbolism of baptism, because this is very, very important as well. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Romans 6, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so this is the, the symbolism of baptism in the New Testament, that when we are put under the water, the symbolism is like us being joined with Christ in his death, that we are submerged. But when we come out of the waters of baptism, it is like being joined with Christ in raising from the dead and being joined with him in a newness of life. It's an obvious symbolism uh, that even a child can understand. And it is something that a watching world can see. When we tell them that Jesus died and was buried, but rose again from the third day to never die again, and that I am joining with him in this baptism, this symbolism of being dead, but being raised again from the dead with Christ to a newness of life, submersion being death, raising being life. This is the symbolism of baptism by immersion. Well, we spent some time this morning looking at the, the constant pattern throughout the New Testament of repentance, faith, baptism. And baptism by immersion, baptism by command, baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this constant pattern in the New Testament is so overwhelming and continuous that I believe that it is an issue of first importance and basic obedience in the Christian life. This is why to come into membership or intentional involvement in this church, we require not only a 
clear confession of faith, but someone to be baptized, to follow in this pattern. Because I cannot in good conscience as a pastor say that, that your faith is in order if you are not willing to at least follow in the very first thing that the Lord asks us to do after baptism, after belief, which is to be baptized. But I would ask a couple of questions because there's many questions and issues that arise. I'm sure there's many that you have in your own heart. And if I don't hit on the questions that you have, please feel free to come and ask me afterwards so that we can talk about it and you can clear up what may be troubling in your heart. But the first is, why do so many people baptize infants? This is a common process. The basic thing, we could talk about this for a very long time, but the regular baptizing of infants, and what I mean by regular is that every, every time a child is born, at a certain time that child is baptized in the church, the regular baptizing of infants is simply not taught in the New Testament. It's hard to argue against it because it's just not there anywhere. There are no infants baptized in the New Testament, clearly. Uh, there is no regular pattern of this. And the regular pattern of baptizing infants goes, as we're going to see, counter to the New Testament pattern of believing, uh, of belief, excuse me, of believer's baptism. And my position on this personally is just very clear. Unless I can be convinced by scripture and plain reason of a position, I do not believe it. And I cannot, I am not convinced at all of infant baptism from the scriptures because it is not there. And I have never had anyone be able to give me a convincing argument. Yes, I understand that there are many people that have written long, detailed books trying to explain away believer's baptism in the Bible, but I do not believe those arguments. And I encourage you, if it's something that you struggle with, Go to the scriptures themselves. Look at what I've taught you this morning. Examine the scriptures for yourself and come to a position that you understand to be true. But where did it come from if it did not come from the Bible? Well, it came from the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. That salvation came through the church. That is what the Roman Catholic Church has always taught that salvation comes through the church and then is ministered to us. It is not directly to us by grace through Christ. And that the church bestows grace upon a child through baptism as an infant. It may have started with good intentions of trying to bestow grace on a child so that the parent won't worry about the, the loss of that child, but this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach the church bestowing grace on a child through baptism. It's simply not there. But this was the religious system of that day that became a powerful and complete religious system by the Middle Ages where it was mandatory that all children be baptized by the eighth day in order for them to be saved. And I, I'm using that term loosely. Well, the first group to rise up and understand by looking at and reading the scriptures that this was not what we find in the scriptures is the Anabaptists. So what happened during the, the Reformation period, a powerfully important period in church history, is that the Bible began to be translated again into languages that people could actually read for themselves, whether it was German or English or whatever the language may be. The Bible was translated, they began to read it, and they began to find what I am telling you this morning. And they saw this pattern of infant baptism as not being present in the New Testament, instead believer's baptism. 
And so this group of Anabaptists were the first to say, we will baptize after a person comes to salvation. And I'm going to read a story to close us out today about what happened there because they were radically persecuted for taking that position. Because what it said was that infant baptism was not a true baptism. It's not a biblical baptism because it's not a baptism that comes after a person's salvation. Well, let me ask a few other questions. How many times should I be baptized? Well, the biblical pattern is once because it is something that takes place after we come to salvation. And it's something that is a marker of us associating ourselves with Jesus Christ and the church. But I would say that the New Testament does not prohibit a person from being baptized a second time. And so my position on this and I will baptize a person a second time in the case that they came to salvation as a child, but either have no recollection of that situation or they believe that their confession at that time as a child was not true. And as an adult, they understand that they are now truly believing in Christ and want to be baptized in a way that they can remember and, and cherish, really, as, as being found as being associated with Christ and his church. And so the position that is very important to take, I think, especially in America today, is that baptism is not therapeutic, meaning every time I feel down or low and I need a little pick-me-up, I'm gonna go get baptized again. This is clearly not the biblical pattern, but it is something that we see being developed in our day and age, people being baptized over and over and over again for a therapeutic in a therapeutic sense, this is not what we find in the scriptures. Well, what should be said at baptism? Because we have a tradition here at our church, which I'll explain, but churches do different things. Some churches, people do not say anything before they are baptized. Others uh, give a complete testimony before they are baptized. Again, in the scriptures, we do not see any particular pattern either way. What we do see is a clear uh, confession of faith. It's said over and over again that the person confessed their sins, repented of their sins, believed in the Lord, and then they were baptized. And so how we learn of the truth of this confession, how we learn of uh, a person's uh, authentic belief, they have to be questioned. Someone has to ask them about it. Someone has to say, what do you believe? Have you trusted Christ? There needs to be a conversation with a person before their baptism to make sure they understand what they are doing. But in Romans 10, 9 and 10, there is a very important passage. And Paul says this, writing about the message of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so there is a joining here of the heart and the mouth. And that it is right, we first believe with the heart, but then we must go and confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so it is our pattern based on this scripture that when a person comes for baptism, that they publicly confess to the congregation that Jesus is Lord. That they have no shame in claiming the name of Jesus Christ. And no, not only no shame, but joy in being associated with the church of Jesus Christ. Because when we publicly associate ourselves with Jesus Christ, there is a price to be paid. And so I would ask you, we've looked at the past, we've looked at the apostles, a little bit of church history, but I would ask you, where do you stand this morning 
on baptism. More importantly, where do you stand as Jesus is Lord? Can you gladly say today, Jesus is Lord? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you confessed your sins to him, turned away from your sins, and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you have not, I pray that today you will believe in Jesus as Lord. But if you have believed in Jesus as Lord, but you have never seen it or understood it to be important to be baptized, I hope that you will see this morning that it is right, that you are commanded by Jesus Christ, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth, to be baptized, and that you not be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ, that you not be ashamed to be associated with his church and with his body. And though your belief may be gradual, because as I hear many testimonies of people of how they came to Christ, some it is dramatic and at one time. But for many people, coming to faith in Christ was a more gradual process where over time they began to understand more and more of who Jesus is. But I think this is part of God's plan in baptism, is that baptism is not gradual. It is a definite decision. It's a moment in time where you say, yes, I am going to claim Jesus as Lord before the watching world. I am no longer going to be ashamed of the church or be separated from the church. I will be uh, counted with the followers of Jesus Christ. It is a decision in time. And so I want to close this morning with a story that I mentioned earlier about the Anabaptists in the 1500s. This is from January 21st, 1525. Under the cover of darkness, a dozen or so men trudged slowly through the snow falling in Zurich. Quietly, they resolutely made their way through the narrow streets. The wintry chill blowing off the lake seemed to match their mood as they approached the Mons house near the great Minster, the largest church in town. The city council of Zurich had that day ordered their leaders, Conrad Drabel and Felix Mons, to stop holding Bible classes. Opposition was mounting. Only four days before the council had warned all parents to have their babies baptized within eight days of birth or they would face banishment from the entire territory. What were the brethren going to do? They agreed to meet at the Mons house to decide. Once inside, they shared their rumors and reports and then they called upon God to enable them to do his will. They arose from prayer to take one of the most decisive actions in church history. George Blaurock, a former priest, stepped over to Conrad Grable and asked him for baptism in the apostolic fashion upon confession of personal faith in Jesus Christ. Grable baptized him on the spot and Blaurock proceeded to baptize others. This was the first time in recorded church history that someone had been baptized as a believer in a thousand years. One year later, on March 7th, 1526, the Zurich Council decided that anyone found rebaptizing because they counted only infant baptism as true, any other baptism as false, would be put to death by drowning. Apparently, their thought was, if the heretics want water, we will let them have it. Within a year, on the 5th of January, 1527, Felix Mons became the first Anabaptist martyr. The Zurich authorities drowned him in the Lamont River, which flows through the city. Within four years, the radical movement in and around Zurich had been practically eradicated. 
Many of the persecuted fled to Germany and Austria, but their prospects were no brighter there. And in 1529, the Imperial Diet of Spire proclaimed Anabaptism a heresy, and every court in Christendom was obliged to condemn these heretics to death. And so during the years of the Reformation, between four and 5,000 Anabaptists were executed by fire, water, and sword. And so it is very different in our day, but it is not different in all around this world. There are many Muslim nations today, many totalitarian government places where Christians live today where the price is just as high to associate yourself and be baptized in Jesus Christ. But today we live in a free country, and today is a joyful and a happy day, a beautiful day, a day of celebration. But I would ask you to count the cost of baptism in following Jesus Christ, because perhaps today you have believed in Jesus Christ, but you have been raised in a Mormon family, or a secular family, or a Muslim family, and you know that to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ will have a great cost for you, and you have not followed him because of that cost. I would ask you today to love Jesus Christ more than your family, to love Jesus Christ more than your popularity, and to love Jesus Christ more than life itself. In hearing the words of Christ, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word and its constant witness. And Lord, I pray this morning for those that are soon to be baptized that your great blessing would be upon them for stepping out in obedience to your commands. And I pray for those that are here today that have not trusted you as Savior, that they would believe today and that those that do believe would be baptized. Lord, we thank you for your word to us and for your continued work all the way down to our time in this place that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.